This morning, we're beginning a series of sermons through 1 Peter. If you have a Bible, uh, please find this little letter. It's hard to find. If you need to use your table of contents, go for it. It's way toward the end, almost to the maps. 1 Peter. And notice right away that this is a letter written by the Apostle Peter. And he's writing it to Christians who live scattered throughout this really huge geographic area. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So to fix that in your mind, this is modern day Turkey. Actually the western part of Turkey, the Anatolian Peninsula. Uh, sometimes this area of the world is referred to as Asia Minor. And it was probably written, the letter, we don't know exactly, but it's something like 30 years after Jesus' um, life and death and resurrection. And at the heart of this letter is Peter, he's concerned about the relationship between the church and the culture. In fact, this little letter speaks more pointedly and more comprehensively to the relationship between Christians and the communities where they live. This letter deals with that subject more than any other book in the Bible. And, and where the apostle Peter begins in his letter trying to help these Christians living scattered apart from one another, as, he, as he's trying to get them to think about the relationship between the church and the communities where they live, where he starts the whole conversation is fascinating because it sounds so modern. He starts his conversation on the topic of identity. We have to know who we are if we're going to know how to relate in a Christian way to the communities where we live. And this is so relevant right now. Our culture is obsessed with identity. Racial identity, gender identity, sexual identity. Growing up is now a matter of finding your identity. Searching for your authentic self. And on our college campuses, the politics of identity has become an addiction. So we're going to look and notice how Peter, before he gets to the issue of Christians and culture, of the church and society, he starts the whole issue by talking about identity. And we're going to just jump right in and see that he, he talks about three things. Um, number one... What is my identity as a Christian? Who am I? Number two, where does my identity come from? And number three, what does this Christian identity produce? Notice in verse 1, Peter identifies Christians as God's chosen ones. Chosen. Verse 2, set aside in advance by God the Father through the work of the Spirit and the blood of Jesus for obedience. 
Verse 3, a Christian is someone who's gone through a second birth. This second birth being different from the first birth, the birth that every human goes through to become a human. The second birth is this being born from God. And this is the heart of identity for Peter. Christians are chosen, set apart, sanctified for obedience, sprinkled by the Messiah's blood. Now notice what Peter does not say about identity. When it comes to identity, he does not address these people in terms of their heritage, their moral moral background, their social status, their wealth, their poverty. He doesn't mention their actual parents. He doesn't even mention their victimization. And they've got it. We're going to talk about that in a bit. He doesn't put victimhood at the center of their status, their identity. He doesn't put status at the center of their identity. He doesn't put success. He doesn't even put family at the center of identity. What he does, what he puts at the center of identity is that God is the father of Christians. That's the basic identity. Now, how does this compare to the way we talk about identity today? Well, very similar in some ways. See, when we talk about identity today, normally in modern conversations here in the West, we mean two things by identity. We mean a sense of self and a sense of worth. Modern discussions of identity focus on this inner essence, this this part inside of you, this core, this durable core that you identify yourself in through all the various hats that you wear, all the various roles you play, all the various situations you find yourself in, that there's an, there's an identity that's consistent there. There's a, there's, a, there's a core that's true about you no matter what day it is, no matter what week it is, no matter what year it is, no matter what role you're playing, what responsibilities you have, no matter what situation you're in, there's, your identity is the core durable sense of yourself. And it's also, when we use the word identity, not only core, durable um, part of you, but also we're talking about the part of you that gives you worth, what makes you feel significant, what makes you confident of your value. Now, this is really helpful. Our society is really getting much better at getting a hold of what makes us who we are. Where does our identity, what is it? And it's these two things. This durable core, this thing that gives you confidence in your value. So the sense of self and the sense of worth together form your identity. And this is really helpful. And if we're really wise, we will regularly and frequently and seriously and thoroughly remind ourselves Of our identity. Because it can get really confusing. You can lose yourself. In the midst of these lives we live. And so for the Christian. What is this durable core? What is this thing that gives value? It is that we have the incredible privilege. Of being a child of God. That's the durable core. That's what gives value. We belong to God. And he loves us. That's the, the deep 
centerpiece of the Christian's identity. That's that's what's true about us. Whatever hat we're wearing, at the center of everything else, if you are a Christian, you are a child of God. You belong to God, and he loves you. And that's true no matter what day of the week it is. It's true when you feel good and when you feel bad, when you feel successful and when you feel like a failure. That's the durable core. That's where the significance comes from. Whatever hat you wear, business leader, parent, teacher, counselor, student, your core identity, the source of your worth, Peter is saying to these people is that you are a child of God. And know that up front. Parents, we should be in the habit of asking our children, who are you? And our children's gut response being, I'm a child of God. I belong to God. That's, what, that's what's the same whether I'm in the house or outside of the house. I belong to God. That's always there. If I'm at the party or I'm at the business meeting, I belong to God. If I'm suffering or I'm not suffering, I belong to God. Now, that's the first thing. What is the Christian's identity? I belong to God. I'm a child of God. God loves me. The second thing that I want us to see is where does this identity come from? Now, Peter's clear on this question. God gives us this identity. It comes from God because of grace. Because he's merciful and gracious, he gives us this gift of belonging to him, of being his child. We don't earn it. We can't deserve it. Like it says in verse 3, it's all because of mercy, not heritage, not experience, not success, not morality. Listen again to verse 3. May God be blessed. See, when Peter is thinking about his identity, it automatically erupts in him in praise. He, he, when he thinks about who am I, that produces praise in him, not despair. It produces praise. He says, may God be blessed. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, his mercy is abundant. And so he has become our father in a second birth into a living hope through the resurrection from the dead of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, let's think about how this way of getting an identity as a gift from God, let's think about how that's different than the way the world thinks right now about where identity comes from. And let's divide the world into two groups, Western modern society and non-Western society. So, for example, Non-Western cultures, some of whom are in our church, often in a non-Western culture, here's how identity works. You're in a family. You're in a people group. And the family and the people group assigns you a role and a set of responsibilities and duties that go with that role. And your identity is wrapped up, your sense of self-worth and durable self and significance, your sense of yourself is wrapped up in doing those duties and fulfilling those roles and discharging those responsibilities. And so if you ask a person from a non-Western culture, 
or a person from a pre-modern culture um, centuries ago, if you had gone and found someone and asked them, who are you, or some version of that question, the answer would, would be something like, I am a son, I am a daughter, I'm a father or a mother, I've got a role in the family, I've got a role in my people, and my self-worth comes when the family bestows honor on me because I sublimate my individual interests for the good of the whole. That's how I know who I am. That's how I know I'm a good person. Janelle and I are watching this TV show, uh, The Man in the High Castle. If any of you have seen it, it's fascinating. And, and um, it's a kind of a science fiction Fiction, what if World War II had gone the other way and Germany and Japan had won and America's divided, um, the, the East Coast is ruled by Germany and the West Coast is ruled by Japan. And in all the storyline on the, on the West Coast focused around Japan, the Japanese characters, their identity is wrapped up in sublimating their own interest for the common good. That's what gives them honor and worth and significance, and value. We also see this in the way a Korean person writes their name. A person from Korea, they give their family name first, and their personal name second. And that's a very good expression of identity in a non-Western culture. You are your duties. You are your role. It is assigned to you. So that's how Non-Western cultures get identity. What about Western, modern culture? It's quite different than that. In modern Western culture, a person does not discover who they are by sublimating their individual needs for the community or for the family. No, what we do, and those of us who are Western, what we do is that each person has a unique core feeling and intuition that must unfold and express itself. And that's where your identity comes from. And to have a really strong identity, whether you're in the movie Frozen or the movie Sound of Music, you have to resist your communities forcing on you responsibility. The strongest identities are contrarian. They strive against expectations from outside. That's how, that's the, that's the furnace in which great, powerful, individual, unique identities are forged. They're forged in the furnace of, of societal tyrannies of expectation. And as you look in and find that you're different than your parents want you to be or your community wants you to be, and that struggle produces a good identity, a strong identity. No one can assign you an identity in the West. You have to look inside. You have to look at your deepest desires to find out who you really are and then express that. You need to discover your authentic self. You must, you must never let your society or your family impose an identity on you. That would be horrible. So to summarize, the traditional non-Western approach to identity is you are your duties. 
You're, you're do, you're, you are your duties within the community. And, and your self-worth depends on the honor your community bestows on you when you sublimate your individual interest for the good of the community. That's how you know. When you make the community proud, you know that you are a person of worth. The modern Western approach says that you are your dreams. You are your desires, your deepest desires, and particularly your choices. See, in in the modern West, if you take choice, you remove the possibility for authentic identity. That's why the freedom of choice is such a powerful rhetorical tool. It trumps anything. If you tell somebody you've taken my choice, you have just won the argument. Because your identity comes from freedom to choose against. And your deepest self-worth depends upon the dignity that you bestow on yourself. You know what the motto of the American Girl doll is? Follow your inner star. See, it's do- it's, that's an indoctrination into a way of having an identity. To find yourself, look within. This is the only remaining moral absolute in our culture today. Be true to yourself. But notice how what Peter is saying about identity challenges both. Both of those approaches to identity have the power to crush you, right? In the traditional approach to identity, what if you don't fit? What if your dad was a cobbler and you're really bad at being a cobbler? What if you've got got a personality that's outside the mainstream and you can't move anywhere, you can't go anywhere because everything is tied to your community, That could be quite crushing for some people. But you know what? It's not like the modern American one is not crushing. Those professors in our church tell me that, you know, the senior year, so many students in college are crushed under despair because, holy cow, they've got to find out who they are and they've got to look inside. And inside, it's not like it's this coherent mass of integrity. No, one day you want this and one day you want that and you think you might want this and in your 20s you want this and your 30s you think, what? I want that. What, whose inside is a star that's like fixed and helps them? <laughs> this is crushing. This is absolutely crushing. Both of these are tyrannizing. Both of these are failed experiments. But see, Peter has this profound insight. New life comes to birth in us. Because a new life has come to birth in the world through the resurrection of the dead, from the dead of Jesus the Messiah. Our core durable significance does not come from the community or from our family or from our roles or our responsibilities or even inside of ourselves with our deepest desires and our most free choices. Identity for a Christian delivers you from both tyrannies. It, it, it means that for a Christian, what God did for Jesus at Easter, he does inside of you, in the very depth of your being. Who are you? I belong to God. He loves me, and he's begun resurrection work inside of me. 
Okay, so we've covered number one, what is our identity if you're a Christian? Number two, where does it come from? And number three, what does it produce? What does the Christian identity produce? Well, the first thing Peter tells us it produces is suffering. Sorry. Right there in verse one, Peter, an apostle of the Messiah to God's chosen ones, there's your identity, who live as foreigners among the dispersion. Now, if you don't think being a foreigner is a suffering, then go to Cargill and ask the people working there if their life is as easy as yours. That's the word he uses. This word foreigner, it means resident alien. It means undocumented citizen. It means you've got a green card, but you can't speak English. That's, that's the metaphor. When he tries to, to say, now what has this identity done to you? He says, it's marginalized you. It's moved you from the center of your community out to where the undocumented citizens live. Becoming a Christian moved these people that Peter was writing to. It moved them to the margins. Those who had honor, when they converted, they lost it. Those who had power and privilege, when they converted, they lost it. If they had wealth, it did them little good. In fact, becoming a Christian was a great easy ticket to downward economic mobility. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. They are suffering trials and tests. What kind of trials and tests are they suffering? They are suffering the trials and tests that the Hondurans in our community who cannot speak English are suffering. That's it. That's the ones they're suffering. They're suffering what the, the immigrants, the refugees in our community, they're going through what they are going through. Do you want to know what they're going through? Ask Bishop Andudu and his family. Ask Aaron who works with these people who works with citizens and undocumented citizens in our law system. What are they going through? They are facing the trials of being someone without local roots. The kinds of trials they are going through is a constant exposure to fear, to suspicion, to ignorant slander, discrimination, and manipulation. Is that, uh, you white people, is that what it's like for you in Harrisonburg? See, it's tricky for us to read First Peter, isn't it? Here in America, those of us who are still at the center of society. There's a time here in America when the Christian faith didn't lower your social standing. There's still parts of America where it doesn't jeopardize your livelihood or threaten your life. I mean, writing in 1998, one of the most significant scholars on the book of 1 Peter, he wrote these words in 1998. He said, the more I study 1 Peter, the more alien it seems to me. It feels alien to the interest and the projects of mainstream Christianity here in America. It's not relevant. But that's not the case around the world. In former Yugoslavian Muslim Indonesia, 1 Peter is the most popular book among Christians. 
And to be honest, here in America, the sanctuary movement that shelters political refugees is finding 1 Peter profoundly relevant. And times are changing. Some of you work in, in um, environments where it's not like that anymore. Some of you live in environments where you know that our society, at least your exposure to it, is post-Christian. It's moved on. My children are growing up in a very different place than I grew up in. My children are growing up in a place that thinks orthodox, old-fashioned, traditional Christianity is weird. Um, Some of you work in places, and you know it's this like, where as a Christian, people think you believe in a load of bronze-aged absurdities. That you're dogmatic and self-righteous. That people think of you as someone who promised the oppressed pie in the sky when they die. And that you're too stupid to understand the irrationality of the creeds. That, that we build our lives on the marshmallow foundation of a fantasy. We uphold the traditional nuclear family with its male and female parents and all of its microaggressions and imprisoning stereotypes. We're savagely judgmental. We think everyone who disagrees with us is going to roast in hell for all eternity. And it's becoming embarrassing to be a Christian. We are viewed as people who oppose freedom. Human rights, gay rights, individual moral autonomy, a woman's right to choose, stem cell research, and the use of condoms in fighting AIDS. We cover up, people think, child abuse because they think we care more about power than justice. We provide pious cover stories for racism and imperialism and wars of conquest and slavery and exploitation. And when we, what we call evangelism is really nothing more than the destruction of tribal cultures. And we teach people to hate their own natural selves and we have this imaginary friend, this sky pixie that we prostrate ourselves before, this God who really has the reality status of Santa Claus. This is what the Christian faith looks like to an increasing amount of our society. And so I ask you, are you willing to embrace the status of an outsider? Some of you will get to die before you have to do it. But what about the rest of you? Are you willing to embrace the status of an undocumented citizen because of your loyalty to Christ? Are you willing to let it be known that your deepest loyalties and inclinations do not line up with what the people at the lunch table are all assuming everybody believes? That's the first thing he says this amazing identity produces. Alien status. The second thing he tells us it produces is an inheritance. Look at verse 4. An incorruptible inheritance, which nothing can stain or diminish. At the moment, it's kept safe for you in heaven while you are being kept safe by God's power through faith for a rescue that is all ready and waiting to be revealed in the final time. It not only produces suffering, it also produces An inheritance. You see, the new life which God created at Easter is not just about individuals being transformed. This word inheritance, Paul uses it 
in Romans chapter 8, it's all over the Old Testament when it talks about Abraham's inheritance. And what is the inheritance God promised Abraham? The earth renewed. The inheritance is not some kind of like a ephemeral, like good feeling after you die. No, the inheritance he's talking about is this earth fixed, beautiful, filled with justice and truth. At this moment, that inheritance is being kept safe, out of sight, behind the invisible curtain which separates earth and heaven. When Jesus rose from the dead, his physical body was the first piece of that inheritance. Physical earth, incorruptible. Doesn't die, doesn't break down, doesn't get sick. And now Jesus is ascended into heaven and he's kept safe there. And that is the guarantee that what God did to Jesus, he will do to industry. Not remove it, heal it. And he'll do this to family. And he'll do this to mountain biking and recreation. And he'll do this to the Rocky Mountains. This whole earth is going to be healed. And it's going to be filled with the soaking presence of God's love and mercy and beauty and goodness. And that is your inheritance. That's what you're going to inherit. You are going to inherit the earth renewed. That's pretty cool. But it's not only about suffering. You not only get suffering from this amazing identity. You not only get an inheritance. You also get a purpose. You get a purpose. Look, it says in verse 2. Um, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. You have a purpose. Your purpose is to obey Jesus. Now, this is not, let the Bible define obedience. It's not some slavish, you can't be who you're supposed to be. No, obedience to, what did Jesus do? He healed people. He loved people. He forgave people. He was kind and merciful to people. He, he, he stood against nature's ravages. You see, your purpose is holiness. Your purpose is to be a signpost, a living, breathing signpost of what life will be like, of what humans will be like when God makes all things new. What are we going to be like? We're going to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That's what holiness is. Holiness is living that out so that when people look at you, they get a taste, they get a foreshadowing, they get a sign pointing to what people will be like when the king who is the benevolent king floods this world with his glory and presence and goodness and beauty and justice. Not only is it about this kind of holiness, it's also about we, we get a purpose. Our purpose is to live out these kinds of lives. And as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, this has a very particular slant to it when it comes to the cities we live in. That's why we heard the passage read from Jeremiah. See, when Peter says your identity is exiles... Now you should go back into this whole long story and say, what does an exile look like in this story? And the key place for that is Jeremiah 29, 4-7. We are to live in our cities as resident aliens for the good of our cities. And this is going to come up throughout the letter. That we are different, 
but engaged. That we are benefactors of our cities. We take the suffering and we turn it into benefaction. We take the abuse. We, in it, we let it go through some cold fusion process by the power of the Spirit. And we turn it into a blessing for the city. We, we don't take our victimhood and turn it into an identity. We take all of this suffering and we turn it into a holy benefaction for our city. This is what our identity gives us. It gives us suffering and inheritance and a purpose. And we have several weeks now to look at these as they unfold throughout the letter. One last thing. Look at verse 6. That is why you celebrate. Yes, it may well be necessary that for a while... You may have to suffer trials and tests of all sorts for a while. When the eternal reward is given, everything that appeared hard and harsh in the midst of our tribulations in this world will seem to us light and brief as we live with the king for kingdom Upon kingdom, no end. Let's pray.